This is episode 54 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks for joining me today. Have you ever tried meditation, but it just didn't stick? Or is there something about the description of meditation or its practitioners that turned you off? In this episode, Susan Piver returns to the show to share some ideas about why and how to start a meditation practice wherever you are and with however much time you have. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Susan Piver is a Buddhist teacher and the New York Times bestselling author of eight books, including The Hard Questions, How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. Her latest book, just recently released, is Start Here Now. Susan has been a student of Buddhism since 1995, graduated from a Buddhist seminary in 2004, and was authorized to teach meditation in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage in 2005. She teaches workshops and speaks all over the world on meditation, spirituality, communication styles, relationships, and creativity. She wrote the relationship column for Body Plus Soul magazine, is the meditation expert and contributor at drwheel.com, and is a frequent guest on network television, including The Oprah Winfrey Show, Today, CNN, and The Tyra Banks Show. Her work has been featured in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Time, Parade, Money, and others. In 2011, Susan launched the Open Heart Project, an online meditation community with nearly 15,000 members who practice together and explore ways to bring spiritual values such as kindness, genuineness, and fearlessness to everyday life. She was also on episode four of the Creative Giant Show, so if you like this one, you might want to go back and listen to that one, or if that wet your whistle, go back and listen to that one first. We're going to jump right in. Alrighty, Creative Giants, on this episode... I've, we brought back Susan Piver. Susan Piver joined us for episode four. She was one of our earliest guests, and she's one of my favorite peoples. Um, and so I'm so excited to have her back. And I was looking over the transcript and, and listening to a little bit of the show. And at that time, we were talking about actually um, her book that she just released, Start Here Now. And at that time, she was in conversations with Shambhala um, because we were talking about happy accidents and you create it, start here now, and, you know, everything like that. And now here we are, October the 20th is the day we're recording this, and the book is out with Shambhala, and it's fantastic. And so I wanted to give a fist bump and high five over that, but just pull people into that. So, oh, man, that's awesome. Thank you so much, and it's great to be able to bookend the whole process. Talk to you right before it happened, now talking to you right after it happened is great. All right, so um, at that time, you are like – you know, this, this other publisher couldn't produce it until 2016, and I wanted it out in 2015. And so you were on that side of the publishing journey. You're on this side now. So what's been exciting about um, the release, and, and, and what's the feedback that you've gotten? Well, it's really exciting to see it in print form. That's been super exciting. And, and, and you know, as far as book releases go, it, you just never know if it's going to come out to a resounding cheer or to a resounding silence. And this one is coming out to a resounding cheer. I, I'm really, really psyched. And it's, it was the best-selling new release on Amazon for Buddhism. I don't know what that means, 10 copies or a million copies. I, I don't know. But it, 
came out of the shoot strong. And that's not always the case, no matter how well one might prepare. So it's been exciting. It's the first book I've written since I started the Open Heart Project, my online community. So it's been really exciting to publish a book with them in mind and to see them respond and be so supportive has been incredibly touching and nice. And I'm just really happy with the way, I'm happy with the way it looks, I'm happy with the way it feels in the hand. And, and I'm happy to see it in print form, as I mentioned, because I was originally planning to self-publish it. So I'm happy I didn't do that, actually. I had the delightful experience of hanging out with Susan at Jonathan Fields Camp GLP. And as part of her um, interview that he did that night, like somehow he arranged for Shambhala to get, I don't know how many copies of the book he got, right? Um, but they were sold out by the end of and, and was messed up about that is like, I'm sitting here hanging out with Susan and we're chatting about, um, well, it, I don't know, the singularity and the earth booting humans off. We were talking about all sorts of weird things like that. We were, that's right. <laughs> and um, I meant to go get a book so that I could have you sign it and everything like that. But we were having such a conversation that someone came in there like, your books are sold out. And then I wasn't able to get one. Um, and so, know, but, you, but you did call, crown me the best-selling author of Camp GLP. So I did. I really appreciated that. <laughs> Alrighty. So let's dive in and talk about meditation and Buddhism and whatever else that comes up. And I was thinking about this because um, I wrote a post recently on the um, on my website, and it's called "What Counts as Meditation." And um, it's not what my form of meditation is not what people think of. Like I'm not, you know, sitting there and I'm not aligning my chakras. I'm not, you know, um, drinking mystical tea, although sometimes I do do that. Right. Um, and you know, there's, there's not gongs going in the background. I think people have this big idea of what meditation is and what it delivers. And that's the other thing about what it delivers. It's not like some, um, it's not like Fantasia is happening. Like I sit down and three minutes later, like all the bright, you know, colors of the universe are going off in my head. It's actually pretty boring. Um, and I'm just, sitting, I'm just sitting there. Charlie, stop. Don't tell people that. They'll never meditate. No. <laughs> but if it's, it's, but you know what, it's the truth. So. Yeah. And so a lot of people struggle with meditation, right? And so um, you've been teaching meditation for years. Um, so if you could, what are some of like the three to five struggles that people have with meditation and what are some simple ways that they can just start here now and just embrace the practice, even if it's not, you know, Fantasia and, you know, things like that? <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, it's a really great question. And it's kind of a question that I'm like super devoted to answering or even just understanding because you can see in if any uh, introductory meditation class is full on class one, but on class four, there's nobody there. So how come? How come? What makes it hard to sustain? So I have various ideas. And the first is like, there's, there are misconceptions about meditation practice, as you alluded to, that can really get in the way. And the first one, the big one, is that in order to meditate, you have to stop thinking. So many people have said to me, and maybe they've said to you, I, there's no way I can meditate. I can't stop thinking. I have ADD or whatever it is. And <clears throat> no problem. You don't have to stop thinking. In meditation, it's not about shutting off some thought faucet. 
and then just sitting there like a zombie or it, some blissed out person in yoga pants. It's not about any of those things. It's about assuming a different relationship to your mind. And if you learn it from you know, a teacher, they'll explain to you how that works. That's a big misconception and, a, and an obstacle. And, and then I also think with all the research that's come out about meditation and the great claims for how it can be useful to a human being, all of which seem to be true, it's easy to think, well, I'm going to sit down on this cushion and some Fantasia thing is going to happen and my problems will be solved. Or these things that I worry about, I'll no longer worry about them. And that is not the case. While it is so that meditation, according to Western thought, Western scientific research, not just Western thought, but proof, it can help you get a better night's sleep. It can help you feel less stressed out by lowering the stress hormone cortisol. It can decrease symptoms in conditions with a stress-related component like ulcers. It can help regulate your blood pressure. It can do all of these amazing things. And then add to that, that, you know, according to Eastern thought and 2,600 years of research, it can make you wise and it can make you kind. So when you, it's understandable that you would sit down on your cushion going, wow, it can do all these things. When are all those things going to start? And they do start, but not in any way that you expect so they start and increase and deepen as you let go of preconceptions and ideas. So that's not easy to do. And it's not easy for those us in the West to do something with this sense of, I'm just going to let it work. Because we want the checklist, we want the plan, we want the program, we want to implement it, we want to measure the results, we want to change course, we want to pivot, we want to, whatever it is we want to do, until we get there. And this practice will not respond to that way, no matter how good you are at that way. So it just makes it difficult. And, <clears throat> and there are two other things. Can, can I say them? Right? Keep going. I'm loving it. Okay, okay good. Thanks. Everybody I know, and we, we were talking about this recently, Charlie, every single person I know feels that they are not good at being disciplined about their practice. And many people just give up. I understand. Some people are like, oh, I'm just going to get in there and try harder. And it's every single person. And the Open Heart Project now is like close to 15,000 people, and I teach all the time. And I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who said, oh, yeah, I got this one. Everybody's struggling with the discipline. And everyone is trying to just harder, just do it harder, be harder on themselves. And it occurred to me recently that the mathematical odds that every single person is suffering from poor discipline is, are low. So there must be other reasons why we all find it so difficult. And I believe, and I'm happy to say more about these if you want, that those two reasons have to do with community. If you're in a community, it doesn't mean you have to be a Buddhist or anything, but if you practice with others from time to time, whether you're in the same room with them or just on a Zoom room with them, it does something magical. And the second thing is a, quali a path quality, 
as I would call it, some sense that this is going somewhere, this leads to that, there are people who understand this, who I can go to for insight, and I'm on a journey. I'm not just showing up every day trying to shut myself up and follow my breath. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to hang out here because there's a lot of similarity in meditation and strangely enough, like doing your best work, right? They, mm-hmm. they kind of converge in a lot of ways. Interesting. And one thing about it is um, when you look at uh, meditation or you look at spirituality, there's a f- deep and fundamental sense of accepting where you are accepting where you are and a lot of times that's the funny thing about meditation for me is that it doesn't take me somewhere else it brings me to where i am and i you know i'm not a meditation teacher that's not that's not my joint right um but what i will say is the convergence is where people get tripped up is not starting from where they are and not building from the strength and the beauty and the joy of where they are right now and building from that and going forward, as opposed to having some future sense of who they need to be and where they need to be and what they need to be doing. And always trying to mine that gap, always trying to jump that chasm between like some ghost of where they are and some ghost of where they want to be. Does it make any sense? You know, of course it does. It it absolutely does. And, it's that's using meditation as self-improvement i'm not happy with where i am wherever that is i'm not going to pause long enough to figure it out but i'm doing this because i want to get somewhere else and just as you say and my friend michael carroll also a meditation teacher says meditation does not help you get anywhere it helps you to be somewhere and that is a profound thing and it's an actually a courageous thing so if we, but if we try to use meditation as a way of just making, you know, like something is wrong with me and meditation will fix it, it's not the purpose of the practice. It won't work. Yeah. So maybe the question when you're approaching the earlier stages of a meditation practice is not where do I want to go, but, but where am I? Yes. And let me just relax with who I am right now. Like if I was my best friend and my best friend was just going to sit here in this room with me and we were just going to hang out and sometimes I would be really nice and fun to hang around with and sometimes I would be grumpy and not so fun to hang around with, but my friend stays. And so it's just a quality of opening to yourself more than anything else and relaxing with your experience in the moment and that seems to be magical much more so than trying to get yourself to go somewhere it's like when you stop trying to get anywhere and you just sort of sit with yourself and your experience things arise that you might not expect and often nothing arises and it's boring just like you say but Still, if, if we want to know something we don't know now, we can't sit here and tell ourselves what to do on the meditation cushion. We have to just let the experience inform us. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You may have heard me share this line from the Tao Te Ching, um, but it's relevant here. And it goes, I forget which chapter it is. I probably should memorize which chapter it comes from too. But um, it goes, the Tao is broad and plain. 
but people prefer the side, the side paths. So the Dow is broad and plain, but people prefer the side paths. And the insight there is like, this is not hard. Like it's right in front of you. It's, it's just right there, but people prefer to take these side, these side paths and shortcuts and these journeys. And, you know, what, what, as you were talking, I was like, why is that so hard? Why is it so hard to be where you are? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really good question. I ask myself that question a lot. It's, here's a couple ways, here's one way of thinking about it. And then something I want to add about the Tao is broad, but people prefer the side paths. In order to be where you are, there's some sense of letting go of knowing where you are. Because if you think, oh, I know what's happening, then you're not there. So there's this constant letting go of concept and knowing, and that's frightening. I remember I heard this once. I wasn't there. Someone asked the great Tibetan meditation master, Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who wrote the book, Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior, as well as many others, what is our biggest fear? And he said, space. Our biggest fear is of space. And, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there, like I said. I didn't, I didn't hear the rest of the conversation. I don't know what he meant. But it must have something to do with the sense of letting go of what you know from moment to moment in order to have a fresh, a sense of freshness and presence. So that's hard. Because it's much easier and preferable in many ways to say, well, this is what that is, and this person does this, and I don't like that, and, you know, to stay with your opinions and judgments, which we must have to negotiate the world. I'm not saying we should just be stupid, but I think it's so hard to be present because it means letting go of what you know. Yeah. I was thinking of um, the comment about space and people being afraid of space. And again, this is one of those convergent pieces because if I were to mysteriously take your schedule tomorrow and remove everything from there and say, nothing has to be done, (laughs) right? You don't have to be anywhere. You don't have to do anything. Some people would like clap and be like, that's awesome. (laughs) Other people would go to a pit of despair. I know because I've done this. They're like, but what am I going to do? Yeah. Why, how I don't understand that. Right. (laughs) Um, And so we do the natural human thing and we fill up our schedule. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, we're frustrated because we spent all day in the nits and nets and we didn't have any space in our schedule. (laughs) Nits and nets. Yeah. And so that's just really interesting because I think when we talk about meditation or Buddhism or spiritual development or personal development, there comes this place where there's the accepting of the sitting and sitting and being where you are. And that terrifies a lot of people because sometimes when you sit, you confront those parts of yourself that you like shoved in that psychic closet somewhere. Right. Um, and when you ask those annoying questions of like, what's my Dharma and where do I want it? Like, what, what am I here on this earth to do? And you come up with a null answer of like, I don't know myself. It's again, I think analogous to that space piece 
of you allow yourself the freedom to say, what, what is it that I'm doing here? And if you don't know how to fill that space up, it's terrifying. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. At the same time, you can do it. When I teach retreats, I teach this practice called aimless wandering, which is a great practice, which is you go outside and you have no destination. And, and I ring a bell and then I'll ring like another bell in 20 minutes or something like that. But in that period, before you hear this, that closing bell, you just are outside. And if you see some color over there that you, oh, let me go look at that color. And then you look at that color and then you don't know what to do. So you just sit there and then you hear a sound. You're like, I wonder what that was. And there's no objective. There's just go outside. And it's actually a really amazing practice. And when I taught it, I was teaching two weekends ago. This woman was in the program who also worked at the place where the program was. And she was like, I walked to this, down this path that I walk every day, twice a day to my car. And I saw, you know, it sounds so trite, but she was like, I saw these blossoms and I, I smelled this. I never realized there were pine trees there until I, so it was just, it was literally like 10 minutes. And suddenly when you go out without the agenda, the world is very alive. And A, we're not used to that. And B, when someone says just, you know, if, if, if you're in a program and someone says do that and in 20 minutes stop, you can do it. You can do it. But as with our schedules, our minds are so filled constantly and ne necessarily so. We all have... We're all busy. We all have a lot to do, a lot of responsibilities and so on. So it's like, imagine it feels like your mind is getting stretched to the size of a football field all day long. You've got these things happening at the 20-yard line, these things happening by the goalpost on the enemy side or whatever the other team is called. And then we got the stuff that's happening right in front of us. And then there's a lot to keep track of. We're doing it every day, every day, every day, sometimes all night long too. And then in meditations, you say, okay, I'm just going to sit down. And instead of focusing on this whole football field's worth of things, I'm going to focus on my breath. And so suddenly, instead of how long is a football field? 100 yards. 100 yards, you have an inch. And it can feel bizarre. And so we try to fill that 100 yards with other things. Well, I'm meditating, I'm supposed to focus on my breath, but let me also chant mantras or stand on my head or try to align my chakras or let me just throw some other stuff in there. Because this space is accustomed to being very large and suddenly now it's very narrow and it can make you anxious but if you just wait five minutes ten minutes that anxiety naturally recedes i promise when i was developing my morning practice one of the things i had to do um, to support that was i used the app insight timer and everyone who listens to the show knows i love insight timer yeah insight timer is great um why don't you have any guided meditations on there i've been looking for you anyway we'll talk about that offline okay um but what i noticed is what i noticed was like I was distracted because I would start meditating and then I wouldn't know how long I had been meditating and how far I had to go. Yeah. And so what I did was I changed it so that I had a, one bell that went off at, because you can do sequential timings. I had one bell that went off at 10 minutes. Uh -huh. 
I had another bell. I had two bells that went off at 20 minutes. Uh-huh. And then I had like the final three bells that let me know I was done. That's awesome. And what that did for me was it's like, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to be out there forever. And I just have to make it from here to there. Have to make it in that way, right? But when it went off, totally. it would be, oh, it's been 10 minutes. Interesting. Right? And then I can go on and then two bells would go off. It's like, oh, it's been 20 minutes. Interesting, right? I can, I can do this. And then it would go off. And, and that made all the difference. It was no change in time. Right? But what made all the difference was just knowing that that 100 yards, what, what I thought about this when you mentioned the 100 yards, it was like, it's not this infinite spans. It's just this one inch. It's so smart. It's so smart to chunk it like that. And then just, you know, know where you are. Because otherwise, it can feel like, well, maybe it's the time we're broken. Maybe I've been sitting here for an hour or, you know, like surely 10 minutes have gone by, but maybe it's only been one. And so it just, it's great. That's a great idea. Yeah. And so the other thing that it does when you do something like this, and I learned this in another context, um, I was doing some, some practicing for speech and I was trying to time how long three minutes was so that when I delivered the speech that I knew intuitively, like how long three minutes was. Um, and when I, because when you're speaking on stage and you know, the Susan, like every second feels like a minute yeah. it feels like so intense. And I'm like, okay, I can slow down. I can breathe. I have to remember that other people's, when I'm speaking, other people's experience of time is different than my own. So what does three minutes feel like? Huh. And I noticed that when I started doing that, it was much like noticing how long 10 minutes was hmm. like, wow, three minutes is a long time. And it's a short time. It's both at the same time. But like you get this intuitive sense of time um, that, that's really, I'm not being very articulate about it, but it's really useful when you're going through something, you're going through a stress point or you're, you're upset or unsettled about something. It's like, I could take three minutes, right, mm-hmm. to go and not clear my mind, but I could just take three minutes to get away from whatever this is and think, or I can go sit for 10 minutes and I know about how long that is. And that's great. Um, that leads to another thing is that I think what I've heard people complain about or say that's a challenge is finding the time to meditate. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you find the time in your schedule to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, anybody can find 10 minutes. I just really believe that. And all you have to do is 10 minutes. And if you can do 15 minutes someday, do 15. If you can only do five, do five. If you can only do one, do one. But everybody can find one minute or 10 minutes. So I don't care how busy you are. If you have nine children, I, I don't care. You can find 10 minutes. I'm not trying to be a hard ass about it. But, and I might, you know, I struggle with it too. I'm not trying to say I've got this one nailed. But it's starting small and staying small if you like. Because we're not in a race here. We're not in a race. I, I was just actually visiting with this teacher this afternoon, right before this conversation. His name is Toku Tundup. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book called The Heart of Unconditional Love. It's a fantastic book. He's probably close to 80 now. He was trained, classically trained in Tibet. He's a, he's a heavy dude. And there's a practice in, in this book that's about eight pages long. And I was asking for his advice on how to do this practice. and. And he said, well, you can, there's like six sections. You can do 
and there's a mantra recitation in there. The mantra is Om Mani Padme Hum. You can do just the first three sections. That's fine. You could do the first three sections and the second three sections. You can just say Om Mani Padme Hum. That's it. That's the whole practice. Om Mani Padme Hum. So this is from like someone who really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and the idea that you would just take time every day or five days a week or whatever you decide is workable for you and just let your mind rest in a different kind of awareness. That is powerful. And we're not in a marathon who can meditate the longest. It's much more about the continuity, the links in the chain. This, you know, one minute, seven days a week is better, is better than, you know, seven minutes, one day a week. So it's, and let me also add that in Buddhist thought, the primary obstacle to meditation practice is called laziness. And there are three kinds of laziness. The first is ordinary. Nobody needs, you know, uh, nah, never mind. I just forget it. I'll just watch Real Housewives of Mars, you know, for the 10th time, which I would watch in a heartbeat. Um, and then the second kind of laziness is, be called, is called becoming disheartened, which just sort of means losing confidence in your capacity to actually do it. Yeah, I've been doing it for a year. Nothing's changed. I can't do it. I'm probably doing it wrong. Never mind. Just losing faith in yourself. It's considered a form of laziness because actually there's a lot to have faith in and you've somehow forgotten. But the third kind of laziness is the part, part, point I want to emphasize. It's called being too busy. And, you know, it sounds counterintuitive, like busy people are the opposite of lazy. They're busy. They're doing things constantly. How can you say being too busy is being lazy? And yes, being too busy... It doesn't need to require exertion. But when you're too busy to honor your own life and your own mind and to devote some time to the discovery of your true mind and your genuine longings and what you really think and feel about things, then you've been lazy. You've let the wrong priorities float to the top because nothing is more important than those things. So that's why I suppose in Buddhist thought, and these are classical teachings of 2,500 years, being too busy is considered a form of laziness. So not anyone who says, I'm too busy to meditate, you should think, could think about it as actually a kind of laziness. Yeah, again, convergence um, in the sense of, um, I think it's Michael Porter who said that the essence of strategy is saying no. Hmm. And from the field of strategic studies and things like that, what we know on that side is the surest route to a business that's going to underperform and not achieve its objectives is when, it, when you have um, project creep and you have goal creep and you forget what actually matters and what's distinct about your business and what you're uniquely able to serve. And you forget that and you get away from it. And then that's where all the business problems happen. And so in the same way, Right. You could say a lazy strategic thinker and everyone who studies strategy would know what you mean. Is it like they're just, you know, not being really clear about what they're doing, who they're serving, the value proposition, so on and so forth. So very similar way. And I think, you know, we can look at it, you know, from a spiritual point of view, we can look at it from a practical point of view of just people who say, I don't have time to do, I don't have time. I hear it on the planning side. I don't have time to make a weekly plan. 
and yet they spend 10 hours a week running around because they don't know what they're doing for that. Like, <laughs> yes, make, I know. I'm guilty of that. You didn't spend the 30 minutes to make the weekly plan, but you paid the nine and a half extra hours to not have the plan. You had the time, right? You just used it in a different way. It, that's exactly the same thing. It's upside down priorities and it's a kind of laziness. It's a lack of rigor. And the rigor when it comes to meditation is the rigor of gentleness and the rigor of kindness toward yourself, which is in very short supply for every single person I know, including myself. So I think another thing that comes up with people when they start thinking about meditation and the Buddha, the, the Buddha curious and things like that is like there, there's some particular way they have to be in the world. Like they're going to change. They're going to start wearing saffron robes um, and things like that. And then, there's a story that I forgot to tell earlier on that, that I think about this with you, Susan, and it's when we were in Mexico and I was eating a bacon cheeseburger at, you know, wherever it was. And you're like, can, can I have some? And it really tricked me, like tripped me out. Cause I'm like, you know, you're a Buddhist teacher, you're, you're teaching all these spiritual things and yet you want some of my cheeseburger. And of course I was happy to share the cheeseburger, right? It wasn't, thank you, thank you Charlie. Um, but it was just that sign of like, wait a second, like you can be that type of thing. And it was a reminder for me that how, what we carry inside doesn't always show up in an external way of being right. Absolutely. Um, so what does it mean to, to be a Buddhist? Like, how does, how does that change one's life? Like, do you have to wear different clothes and give up stuff? Like, what's that about? Yes, very good question. And thank you for that bite of the cheeseburger. I really I remember enjoying it very much. And by the way, when you, if you ever have a chance to hang around the really great teachers or hear, let's watch the give talks on YouTube or whatever, the overwhelming quality that comes across is genuineness. And so it's, it's part of the, it's one of the fruits of practice. I think it doesn't mean they're all eating bacon cheeseburgers, but so when, when you become a Buddhist, you have to wear different clothes. If you become a monastic, yes, but otherwise no, unless you want to. And do you have to give things up? Well, it really depends on what form of Buddhism you practice and where you start in your Buddhist path. So there are certain traditions that, yes, they very much focus on renunciation, simplicity, discipline, and they might ask you to give things up, like killing others, you know? That seems pretty reasonable. Like, I think it's pretty reasonable myself, you know, being a liar or a lush or, you know, the classics that mm. most religious traditions ask us to give up. But there are certain traditions, again, that focus on renunciation and simplicity and very broadly speaking they could be said to correlate with the first turning of the wheel of dharma the the early teachings of the buddha the hinayana teachings the foundational vehicle there are other traditions that ask you to give up other kinds of things like uh, self-importance or but not in the way that we might think of it. Like I need, I'm now I'm nothing. Not, that's not what is meant by that. Ask you to give up putting yourself first always. And those traditions emphasize things like compassion and kindness and service to the world and are often associated with the second turning of the wheel, the second cycle of teachings, the Mahayana, the, greater vehicle but I don't think it's called greater because it's better it's called greater in my mind because 
the teachings are on the greater world, you in the greater world, not you doing greater th practices. They're all great. And then the third cycle of teachings, you're actually encouraged not to give anything up, but rather to look at everything, every moment, everything you do, every morsel of cheeseburger, every everything, as a possible moment where you could just wake up to the heart of reality. And these teachings associated with this third cycle, the Vajrayana, emphasize thing, more things like authenticity and warriorship and uh, the magic of the ordinary. So, you know, nobody's asking you to give anything up. But at the same time, there are practices, there's kinds of cultures of practice that emphasize different things. So, but becoming a Buddhist, it is called, the formal ceremony is called taking refuge. And you take refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the community. And that has a huge, broad meaning. Absolutely. You mentioned the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the community. That's at least the second time that you've mentioned community on this call. And so I wanted to pull that back in because um, it's a great time to talk about that. You mentioned that one of the barriers of meditation is not being in a community. And obviously, I live in Portland. You live in Boston. Um, sufficient, sufficiently large cities that have you know, either Buddhist centers or meditation centers. But if we're not in one of those places, like where do we find the community of practice? Yeah, it's really hard to do, actually, but it's possible. And I just want to emphasize again that by, I don't mean you have to join anything. You don't have to become a Zen student or a Tibetan Buddhist person or anything like that. It just means practicing with others. You don't even have to talk to them. So you can go to a Buddhist center if you happen to live near one, like as you and I do, just drop in. Most of them have public sitting that's just open to anyone. You just sit and leave. You don't have, again, you don't have to talk. But there's, there's something about the connection with others that is very buoyant for your practice. But you don't even have to do that. You can just uh, talk with a friend who also wants to meditate and say, friend, let's meditate at 7 a.m. my time, whatever time zone you're in, the equivalent Let's just practice together for 20 minutes and you can enter a Zoom room or use Skype or just text each other. I'm starting now. Okay, now I stopped. But there's just to have some sense of I'm doing this with someone else. There's something really helpful about that. I guess for the same reason that it's easier often to write in a coffee shop than it is in the quiet of your office. Why is that? I don't know. But there's something about the presence of others that is motivating or creates some sense of containment. When you're just by yourself in your house or your office or whatever, things can just get very fuzzy. So you can be creative about how you do this. But the Open Heart Project, my online meditation community, that it was started for this reason to offer a sense of community wherever you are, whatever time it is where you are. Yeah, I wonder 
if that sense of community, and we were talking about this recently, it makes you forget about yourself in a way that's really important because if you're meditating and I'm meditating, we make, you know, a commitment to meditate together. Then when I'm sitting there just all by myself and it's just really about my own agenda, my own sort of world, I remember, wait a second, I'm in this, I'm doing this with someone. I'm a part of something greater than myself. And that could be really supportive. Exactly. That's exactly the right word. There's something very supportive about being working with your mind, knowing that your friend is also sitting there working with their mind. And when I teach retreats and I give meditation instruction, I ask that everybody do the technique that I'm teaching. Some people may come in with other experiences and have slight modifications or vast modifications to their normal meditation technique, <clears throat> which is fine. But I ask them for the purpose of this retreat or this evening to all do the same practice because just that is supportive. To be in a room with people that are doing the same practice is really powerful. I don't know why. But if you're doing this and I'm doing that and you're doing chakras and you're on a shamanic journey, that's, you know, cool. But it's, it doesn't give that sense of relationship. And the, the relational quality is very empowering. Hmm. One last sort of conversational thread as we wrap it up. Um, I was noticing in my own practice that I reached a point to where I had a comfortable 15 to 20 minute sort of thing going on. After I backed down from the 30 minute, I noticed that I had to, I had to strive. I had to really try past a certain point to stay in the practice and it was getting in the way of the practice. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to pull back something that you said is that you can start small and stay small. Mm -hmm. um, so what might be the reasons? Well, I know for me, I decided to go back to something that, um, and this is just Charlie speaking for Charlie. Um, I, I knew that I could find 15 to 20 minutes. I knew that that was the right amount of time for me. I knew that with everything else going on in my world, I didn't need yet another thing to strive mm -hmm. to do. I didn't need another goal. I just needed this safe space to do what I needed to do. And so okay. that was enough. And so, you know, that's continued to be enough for a long time now. Um, that's great. Is there any particular reason not, well, just, just treat me as, as the, as the listener here, right? Is there any reason why I should go past 20 minutes? Like, is there something that I'm missing? Like by just sticking with what works for me? Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you <clears throat> when you say, once you got past 15 or 20 minutes, you were creating obstacles for yourself. What do you mean by that? I meant that at a certain place for me in that time for what the practice was meant to do, that I was, there was a doneness to it and not allowing myself to be done and move and transition into the next thing created that like, Oh, I've got to like, it's another eight minutes. I got to finish this or I wanted like, there was, there was a sense of, um, I'll, I'll go Taoist on this one more so than Buddhist. There was a sense of um, way wu way that happened, right? There's a doing not doing, which is the sort of um, effortless action would be the other way um, to explain that sort of concept. And I recognize that after that point, I was having to exert effort to stay in the practice mm -hmm. to a degree that I was not earlier. And so um, 
and my my sort of exploration around that then was like why why am i doing that why what is it about being done that i can't accept and making it more of and so for me that that's just what i came to is it like you when you really listen to be where you are sometimes to be honest sometimes i'll sit there for 45 minutes most days though it's not mm-hmm. um and so that was for me and that's the obstacle the obstacle wasn't so much like there were new barriers it was just like extra exertion that was noticeable mm-hmm. that wasn't so much in the practice but about the practice right it's totally fine to stay with what feels good what feels right i'm not saying you're trying to slack off by what feels good i mean just what feels like i did this and now it's over and that's fine you said am i missing anything and i would say yes you are missing the chance to work with your mind when it would rather be somewhere else you're not missing the chance to shove it back into wherever it is you think it should be but you're missing the chance to observe your mind when it is when it feels uh tied down to something it would rather not be tied down to so is that true is it tied down what happens if you stay with that feeling of tied down what could you find from relaxing with the feeling of being tied down instead of trying to change it into or interpret its meaning but what could you gain from bringing that into the practice and just letting it be part of how your mind is living right now because your mind has this living quality sometimes it feels big and spacious and open and sometimes it feels tight and uncomfortable and they're both fine when it comes to meditation practice can you stay with your experience in both cases that's very valuable that said i'm not suggesting that you should push yourself in any way but from time to time stay a few minutes longer when you feel that it's done just to see what happens yet another way to be here now that's right that's right does it get easier yes and no i mean i've been practicing for over 20 years and i know i'm sitting here on my cushion doing the same thing everyone else is doing what's for lunch and i wonder if i have cancer and what why did i say that thing 18 years ago and this is boring whatever it is that people are doing so the individual sessions don't seem to get easier i'm sorry to say but the uh, interpreting them as something for you or against you does. That it just becomes, oh, that's what happens. That's just how my mind is. And I'm just relaxing with it. The ability to relax with discomfort definitely gets easier. Discomfort doesn't go away. But the ability to bring it in and relax with it definitely definitely does and also while i think it's only right to point out that while no for me and i don't think i'm alone in this almost no particular meditation session is mind-blowing or life-altering the practice itself has altered my life profoundly 
and those benefits do not happen during the practice. They happen in the post-meditation experience, which is what meditators call the rest of your life. So that's the thing to keep your eye on. Not is meditation getting easier, but is my life getting easier? That's where your answers are. That's fantastic. And I think I want to wrap it up there. Perfect. Susan, thanks so much for joining me yet again. I look forward to, you know, other conversations in the future. And you're such a jewel. Thank you. Uh, Charlie, you are the greatest. You're the best. I'm so happy that we're in each other's lives. Okay, Creative Giants. So we've been talking about meditation and a little bit of a diversion in Buddhism. And remember, it's really about how it makes your life easier and better. So if you've been meditation curious, I hope you'll give yourself the chance, maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever's right for you, to make that time to just be where you are. And um, if you want more support about this, really check out Susan's new book, Start Here Now. She's also at susanpiver.com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.